0: Good morning. My name is Dennis Ryan, and I will be reading the scripture this morning, which is found in the gospel of Matthew, chapter two. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you underneath. And in those Bibles, it's on page 956. Matthew, chapter two will be in verses one through twelve. Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, it's time for us to look into God's word together this morning. And as you've heard from Matthew chapter two, we want to continue to study uh, the Christmas story that we began some a couple of weeks back, to remind you, and if you've never been with us here in our church for this series, we're working our way through the Christmas story. We're primarily relying upon the story as told by the Apostle Matthew, who gives us a very good account of the birth story of Jesus Christ. But the way that we're looking at the Christmas story is through the lens of our struggles. So I've called this series, God Came Down. What does Christmas have to do with the struggles and the problems that we face? A couple of weeks ago, we talked together about the problem of regret. Many people live with regret, remorse and shame and guilt over the past. So the gospel and the Christmas story says something about that and frees us from regret. Last week, we talked about the problem of being misunderstood. And once again, we saw how Joseph and Mary were often misunderstood by people. You saw that in the video too. And yet the Christmas story speaks to us and gives us comfort in the midst of that misunderstanding. Today I'd like to go one week further into our series and we're going to look at the, uh, the problem of looking at the future and looking at it as though all is grim, all is bleak. What do we do when we look into the future and we feel that it's nothing but Grim. What does the Christmas story have to say to that? You've heard that that song that is often sung at this time of year. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping on your nose. Yuletide carols being sung by a choir. And kids all dressed up like Eskimos. Such a nice song, isn't it? If only it were true... If only life were like that, if only life could be like a Courier and Ives print on a canister of Christmas cookies or a Norman Rockwell painting on the cover of Saturday Night, po- Saturday Night Post magazine or something like that, Saturday Evening Post, um, if only it could be, but you know better, you know, and you've experienced, you've lived life a while, and you know life is not like that. Rather, life is a bit more like an abstract painting. Something by Picasso, perhaps. Something by Jackson Pollock. Something like that. Life is full of chaos and uncertainty. Unpredictability and struggles. I'm looking at people this morning who are in the midst of that struggle. A lot of you do look into the future and feel that it's grim. Some of you are dealing with physical challenges in your life. You don't know what to do. You don't know what's going to happen with those struggles. Some of you have relationship problems in your home or with friends of yours. Others of you are unemployed. Others of you are dealing with depression and grief and other emotional issues. This church is filled with broken people. I'm a broken person. So are you. And so as we look into the future and see that it's grim, see the problems that are around us, we wonder what does the Christmas story have to say about that? So today I want to talk with you who are having a hard time celebrating, some of you who are looking into the future and are discouraged. I want us to look this morning at this really, really familiar story of the wise men because embedded in this story is real hope, not fake hope, not illusion of hope, but real gospel hope. And here's how I'd like to go about it today. I want us to look at the story of the wise men and see two things that you and I should think about when we feel the future is grim. Two things. Let's start with the first. In this story of the wise men, we find out that Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. And that's what you should think about when you feel like the future is grim. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. See, this story proves that you and I don't have a distant God. We don't have a God who is far removed from us. No, our God comes near us when we suffer. Isn't it a blessing that God didn't just drop books out of heaven that showed us how to have a relationship with Him? Isn't it wonderful that God didn't rely on angels to come to earth and give us the message about how to be forgiven of our sins? No, He came Himself And He didn't come riding in on a golden chariot or a flying limousine. He came incarnate in the flesh, in the person of His Son and through a poor family in a small village known as Bethlehem. Matthew tells us in this familiar story that Jesus came and He immediately became familiar with our sufferings in at least two ways. Let's look at how Jesus became familiar with our sufferings. In the first place, he knew what it's like to be ignored. Jesus knew what it's like to be ignored. You know the story. You've heard it a thousand times. I'm just going to merely highlight some parts of it. The story is that wise men, or otherwise known as magi from the east, saw something in the sky that they believed signaled the arrival of the Jewish messiah. Now, I'm going to tell you more about the wise men in a little while, but for now, let's ask the question, what was this star that they saw, this star in the east? Well, there are a lot of theories about it. Perhaps some have said it was the Shekinah glory that the Israelites saw when they were coming up out of Egypt into the Promised Land. Maybe. Maybe it was a conjunction of planets. It has been proffered that Jupiter and Saturn and Mars might have been somehow aligned with certain constellations, and that was the star. Well, that could be, I guess. Maybe it was a comet. Well, I gave a call to our resident NASA physicist, Phil Metzger, and I asked him what he thought the star in the east was, and Phil gave me much more information than I I could digest, but it was really interesting. And Phil said, Well, he gave me several alternatives and said he thought he fell down more than 50% likelihood that it was a nova. You know what a nova is? A nova is a star that suddenly appears in the sky. Phil says that some classes of nova can actually appear and disappear multiple times. I read somewhere that according to Chinese records, there was, in fact, a prominent nova in 5 or 4 B.C., Maybe it was, but whatever the star in the east was, these magi had been searching the heavens for years, looking for a sign of the Messiah, and they believed that this was it. Verse three of our text says that King Herod and all of Jerusalem were disturbed. You want to notice that word with me, that word disturbed when they heard the wise men were asking about the child and the king of the Jews. That word disturbed, it it, it means agitated. It might even mean terrified. The same Greek word is used of Jesus' emotional state in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was that disturbed. And so our story says that all of Jerusalem, and we would presume that that would include the religious leaders of the Jewish people, were shaken by the wise men's arrival. So according to verse 4, King Herod called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Those were the religious authorities. And he asked them where this Messiah was supposed to be born. And these people quoted a Bible verse, a verse out of the Old Testament, Micah 5, 2. And they said, oh, yeah, we know. We know where the Messiah is supposed to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah came from. See, they knew the scriptures of the Old Testament. And not only did they know that verse out of the book of Micah, but I have no doubt that the religious leaders of the Jews also knew Numbers twenty-four seventeen. Here's a little Bible trivia. Back in Numbers twenty four, you have a series of prophecies given by a man by the name of Balaam to a, another man named Balak. And do you know what Balaam told Balak in Numbers twenty four seventeen? He said, A star will rise out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. See, the Jewish leaders knew that prophecy and they knew that a descendant of David was going to rise up out of Israel and shepherd the people of God. The religious leaders knew all that. But what did they do about it, is the question. Nothing. Nothing at all. Even though they were shaken and disturbed by the reports of this star and the king of the Jews being born, they did nothing to follow up on it. Matthew is terribly silent about the response of the Jewish religious leaders to these reports. They didn't rush out to Bethlehem with the Magi. They didn't take Jesus' gifts like the Magi did. Bethlehem take note of this, is just five miles away from Jerusalem. It was a short little walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see Emmanuel, God with us. But the Jewish religious leaders didn't do that. The only people who worshipped the newborn king were a few poor shepherds, some Gentile astronomers that I'm going to tell you about later, and a couple of senior citizens named Anna and Simeon. The rest of the religious world, after they were stirred for a little while, rolled back over and went to sleep. The book of John, chapter 1, says that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus knew what it was like to be ignored. To be pushed to the periphery of people's consciousness. To be treated as irrelevant. If you have ever been ignored, if you've ever been rejected, you can know that Jesus identifies with you. So the first thing we think about then when we read this story is that Jesus knew what it was to suffer and one of the things he suffered was being ignored. But I said there were two things that he suffered. The second one is that he knew what it is to be hated. To be actively hated. King Herod, who is mentioned there in verse 1, Tell you a little bit about King Herod. He, he had been king in Judea for some 30 years or so, and historians tell us that he was a corrupt, crazy king. Despite some of the positive achievements that he made there in Judea, Herod had murdered his wife, Mary Omni. He had murdered at least two of his own sons and several of his other relatives. He married nine times. You know why? Because he was so insanely jealous of other people who had power that he wanted to consolidate power under himself as much as possible. So nine different marriages he went through. So what's happening here is that he calls the religious leaders of the Jews into his office and he says there in verse 4, where do your scriptures say that the Messiah is supposed to be born? And as I said earlier, they knew the right answer. They told him, Bethlehem. So Herod summoned the wise men and he says to them there in verse 8, Go out and find where he is and bring me the news so that I can worship him. Now you and I know that Herod had no intention whatsoever to go and worship the king of the Jews. To Herod, Jesus represented a rival king, a threat to his own power. And that Herod could not tolerate. You're going to see next week, if you come back, what Herod's true intent was. We're going to look later on in chapter 2. You'll find out that Herod's plan was, in fact, to kill the one called the king of the Jews. Jesus had to be put down because he was hated. Hated by those who saw him as nothing more than a threat. So I ask you after we've seen that, what is it that you're struggling with today? What is it that is a burden on your heart this morning? What are your fears? What are your concerns? What are the struggles you're having in your family, in your own body, among your relationships, at school, at work? What do you fear about the future? How does it look grim to you? Whatever it is that you're going through today, This story proves that Jesus understands. He understands you. And that's why you can keep moving. It's why you can, yes, weep and depend on friends and hurt, but you can keep on moving because you're not moving alone. The King of kings and the Lord of lords knows what you're going through and He promises to be with you. Many of you know that before I came here to UPC, I was serving a different church in another city. And it was a difficult place. It wasn't going well. I felt betrayed. I felt discouraged. Added to that were the mistakes that I own up to. But in the midst of it all, I had two friends that I would often call on the phone and ask for help. One of them was a pastor friend, and the other was... Just kind of a a blue-collar guy who owned his own landscaping business. I called my pastor friend and asked him questions because I knew he was an expert and he could tell me what to do. But when I called my landscape business friend, I didn't ask him questions. I just spoke from the heart. I talked about the relationships that I was having. I talked about the struggles. I talked about my doubts and my fears. And he just sat there on the other end of the phone and listened. I could keep moving because I had a friend who understood. Jesus is that kind of friend. I've found him to be that. I hope you have too. If you've never had a relationship with Jesus, I hold out to you from the gospel story in Matthew, a friend like no other. A friend who will stick closer than a brother. If you've never met that friend, You can meet him today. He is accessible. And he invites more friends into his family to be the friend who will understand no matter what it is that you're suffering. Lately, I've been using a devotional in my own times with God, and it's called Jesus Calling. Some of you probably have used that little devotional book. It's written by Sarah Young. And just providentially yesterday... This is what the reading said. I was in the midst of this study about how well Jesus understands in the midst of our struggles. Listen to what Sarah Young says. She says, and this is, this is spoken, by the way, from the viewpoint of Jesus. The whole book is written like Jesus is calling you, okay? She writes, make me, Jesus, the focal point of your search for security. You're still trying to order your world so that it's predictable and feels safe. Not only is this an impossible goal, but it's also counterproductive to spiritual growth. Instead of yearning for a problem-free life, rejoice that trouble can highlight your awareness of my presence. In the darkness of adversity, you're able to see more clearly the radiance of my face. Accept the value of problems in this life, considering them pure joy. Remember that you have an eternity of trouble-free living awaiting you in heaven. Isn't that well said? Because problems are unavoidable. You and I will struggle. Jesus even said, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart. I, he says, have overcome the world. In Psalm 34, 18, it says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. So friend, he knows what you're up against. Stay close to him. And you can keep going. Well, when we think that the future is grim, what we've learned from Matthew so far is that we need to remember that Jesus knows what it is to suffer. But here's the second thing you need to know. Here's the second thing you need to think about when you're afraid, when you're struggling, when you're looking to the future with fear and, uh, and trepidation. Here it is. Jesus is building his kingdom. Jesus is building his kingdom. Another way of putting that is that Jesus is always at work. He's always up to something. So what you need to do is just keep your eyes fixed on him. Let's see how Matthew develops this. I said earlier that I'd tell you a little bit more about the magi, so let me do that now. Who were these wise guys? Well, the word magi comes from the Greek word magos, which means great. And I presume that because it means great, that's where the tradition came from, that these wise men were kings. You've probably sung the song, We Three Kings, right? Well, I've got news for you. The wise men weren't kings, and they weren't necessarily three of them. We don't know how many wise men came to see Jesus. There might have been three. It might have been thirty-three. Or something in between. I don't know. There's no way to know. It doesn't say anything about a number of wise men. But there were enough of them to somehow cause this stir in Jerusalem. But what they were, were men of keen intellect. They were scholars. And they were living in Persia or Babylon. I.e. modern day Iraq in that area. They were scientists or astronomers. They sought truth in the study of nature and dreams. And often the wise men of the East would be consulted by kings uh, when these kings were trying to make decisions. They would call them in and question them about things. All of which means that these wise men were Gentiles, not Jews. They were Gentiles, but they knew something about the God of the Old Testament. How'd they know? Well, they had heard about God from some of the Jews that had been deported over to their lands during the exile and at other times. You know the name Daniel, right? You know that Daniel, if you know that story, spent much of his life in Babylon. He was deported during the exile to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And the interesting thing about Daniel, over in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, it says this, The king, that is King Nebuchadnezzar, placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and, catch this, placed him in charge of all the wise men. So what do you suppose Daniel told these wise men over in Babylon? He told them about the king of kings. He told them about the promises of the coming Messiah. He told them about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so the stories and the scriptures and the traditions about the Jewish God, Yahweh, infiltrated this place where the magi lived and generation after generation passed the stories were passed down and just like the jewish religious leaders knew scriptures like numbers 24 17 so did the wise men of persia they knew that a star would come out of jacob they knew that a scepter would arise out of israel and so that explains why the wise men were studying the heavens wondering when is that star going to appear when is the god of israel going to arrive It's an amazing story of the faithfulness of God to spread his love to every nation on earth. The other thing that might surprise you about these wise men is that they didn't see the baby Jesus in the manger of Bethlehem. I'm sorry to be the messenger, but your manger scenes are wrong. I'm not saying you need to throw them in the trash can, but uh, the wise men weren't there. Look at verse 11 of our text. It says that they went to see Jesus in his House. The word is house, not stable, not manger. He wasn't a newborn baby at this time when the wise men finally found out where he was. Verse 11 calls Jesus a child, not an infant. By the time the wise men worship Jesus, he's been circumcised at the age of eight days, and the rites of purification that took place at the age of 40 days have also taken place already. And you can read about all that in Luke chapter 2. So Mary and Joseph are living in a house in Bethlehem and Jesus is at least six weeks old, if not, as many scholars believe, one or two years old when the wise men come, fall down at his feet and present him with these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But the point of all that is that the wise men were the least likely candidates to fall down in front of Jesus and worship him. They weren't children of Abraham. They were, as I said earlier, Gentiles, not Jews. But they get it. They get the gospel. They know who Jesus is. In verse 2, they say He is the King of the Jews. Not may be the King of the Jews. Not may one day be the King of the Jews. He is the King of the Jews. How would they know that? They knew it because God has always had a worldwide vision. The God you and I love and serve is a missionary God. Always on the move, finding nations, people groups, individuals all under heaven that need to know the good news. Remember what God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? When God came to Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. We're seeing in Matthew 2 the fruition of that promise. God's gospel message passing through the Israelite line into the other nations of the world. Here were believers in God, at least God-seekers, at least God-fearers, even at the birth of Jesus Christ in the land we now call Iraq, and God can do it again because He's a missionary God. I love what God promises us in Isaiah chapter 42. Look at it, it's up here on the screen. This is a prophecy given by Isaiah. Is the voice of God speaking about His Son. And He says, Here is My servant whom I uphold, My chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put My spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In His law, the islands will put their hope. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I'll take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and, notice this, a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. These magi from the east were the very people whom God promised to reach way back through the prophecy of Isaiah, that star in the east was put there by God to reach out in love. Third candle of the Advent wreath to the nations of the world. Friends, does this not encourage you? I, I you know, I don't know about you, but I do get very discouraged when I look at the world around us. When I read the news, you know, I watched the debate last night. I hear all these issues. I, I sometimes just think it's hopeless. It is not hopeless. Because God is always at work. When you think about these wise men from the east, you should remember that promise in Habakkuk chapter 2 that says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is building His church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And you and I are blessed to be part of His movement, His missionary movement throughout the earth. I got an email from John and Sarah File a couple of the missionaries that we support here at our church over in Japan. And I've told you before that John and Sarah live in Toyosu, that part of, it's a city within a city, it's within Tokyo, but it's a city of 126,000 people and not one single evangelical church. That's why John and Sarah are there. That's why we're supporting them with our dollars and with our prayers. That the light of the glory of the knowledge of God would shine in Toyosu well they shared the news that they had a gospel choir outreach last week the people in Japan love gospel choirs black gospel they love it and this is what our missionaries are doing all the time they're having black gospel choir music among the people in Japan and 100 i mean uh, 175 people came to their gospel choir outreach last week we can rejoice that the light of the glory of the knowledge of God is shining in Toyo Sue. Got another email last week from Dave Imbrock. Many of you know Dave and Sue. They are members here at UPC and they're up in the Christian Embassy in Canada. Last Monday they had their annual Christmas dinner for the many diplomats that live in Canada from all over the world. 186 people from more than 40 different countries attended that dinner and they heard the gospel. And now Dave and Sue are following up using appointments to go talk to all those people. Last Sunday evening, we had a meeting here at the church, a meeting of people who are interested in going to Cherokee, North Carolina in June to do a family mission trip. You know, Cherokee, North Carolina is a place beset with social problems. These people who have not heard the gospel, the casinos have created social problems like you and I don't see. Alcoholism, drug abuse, lethargy, apathy, splitting families, youth that sit around with nothing to do and they don't have any ambition at all. And our church believes that Cherokee is a place that is desperately in need of the gospel. Why? Because the light of the good news needs to shine in Cherokee. And it will be powerful. It will be effective. And we get to be a part of that. So what I'm saying is to you who are discouraged and who look around you and wonder, What's happening to me? What's happening to us? Is there anything good about which I can rejoice? You sure can because Jesus not only suffers with you and understands your situation, but he has not forgotten his promises to be the God of the nations around us. Aslan is on the move. He is always at work and you and I get to participate in that. So how do we respond to these two truths? We bring him gold, incense, and myrrh. We, f- we say with the song that we're about to sing, Come, peasant, come, king, to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. May God so move in UPC this Christmas season that you and I will enthrone the king of kings in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you came a long way to rescue us. You visited us when we were running away from You. Lord, You loved us when we didn't love You. You opened our eyes when we would have preferred to have kept them closed to the truth of You. You warmed our hearts when our hearts were captured by idols of all kinds. Lord Jesus, thank You that You came. That You understand. You know our suffering. You understand what we're going through. And You've promised to not let us go. You've promised, Lord, just like You showed Yourself to the Magi, You can show Yourself to the most unlikely people around us. Maybe people in our own families. People that are in other countries that are seemingly close to the gospel. Lord, whatever the case, we pray that the gospel will be on the move and that we will be a part of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.